Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. How are we doing this morning? Uh, Give me another test. How are we doing this morning? Yeah, much better, much better. It is great to see you here this morning. We want to welcome all of you that are watching online as well. We've been in a series called Proof. And what we've been doing through the series is proving that Jesus is who he says he is. We've been giving you the evidence to strengthen your belief. And the reason why we think this is so important is because we know that all of us at one point or another in our life, we're going to face a situation, we're going to face difficult circumstances, they're going to make us question our belief. That we know that all of us at some point in our life, we're going to be like the father in Mark 9. Remember, he's the one who took his son to Jesus. And he said, if you can, would you heal my son? And Jesus said, well, all things are possible for those who believe. And the man says, well, I believe, but can you help me with my unbelief? And so we've been trying to help you with your unbelief. Because we know that if you don't know that Jesus is who he says he is and that Jesus will do all the things that he says he will do, you could face circumstances that would make you doubt your faith and walk away. And we don't want that to happen. So we're all about giving you the evidence to strengthen your belief so that you would stand firm in your faith no matter what you're facing. And to do that, what we've been doing is going through the book of John. Now, remember, there are four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's actually the last one to write his account. In fact, by the time he writes his account, all the other apostles have already died. And John writes his a little bit different than the others. And I like the way he writes because he's not just content with telling you what happened. He wants to tell you why it happened. And not only does he want to tell you why it happened, he wants to tell you what you should do because it happened. And this is what he says in John 20, verse 30. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And he's not talking about the book being the Bible. He's actually talking about the book that he is writing of the life of Jesus. And he's saying there were so many things that I had to choose from. There were so many things that I could have put down that Jesus did, that I saw, that the disciples saw, that other people saw, that I experienced. There were incredible, incredible things. I mean, there's not enough pages for me to write all this down. So what I've decided to do is write about seven signs. I'm going to tell you seven signs. And the reason why I've reduced it to these seven signs is because these were the things that I saw. These are the things that I experienced that changed my life. These were the things that made me believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So I'm not writing all of this down to tell you to believe. I'm writing all this down to show you why I believe. But my hope is that when you read this, when you read all the things that have been written, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. He's saying, Jesus changed my life, and I want him to change yours. So that's why I wrote this account to change your life. And so this series, we've been going through each one of those seven signs. And so if you missed any of the previous weeks, make sure you go back to metchurch.com. Make sure you go to metchurch.online. We've got our archives on those that you can watch these messages because Bill's been doing an amazing, amazing job 
of just showing the evidence in each one of these signs. This has been a truly life-changing series. And uh, if you're struggling with your faith, or if you know somebody who's struggling with your faith, or if you know somebody who doesn't even uh, have faith in God right now, this is an incredible series to share with them. So make sure you're putting that out there and, and letting people know about this series. And then last weekend was, was Easter. What an incredible time. What an incredible celebration. It was great to have so many people back on campus for the very first time. It was a, uh, an incredible weekend as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it was there that Bill actually talked about the absolute proof. The absolute proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Because let's face it, guys. When a guy tells you that he is the son of God, and that he is going to go to the cross, and he's going to die for your sins and my sins, but in three days, he's going to rise from the dead, and he pulls that off. I mean, case closed. That's all the evidence in me, right? I mean, he is who he says he is. So as we end this series, I want to talk about what do we do with that? What do we do when we have the proof? What do we do when we know that Jesus is who he says he is? What do we do when we have put our faith, our trust, our belief in him? What do we do? And so to tell us what to do, I'm going to talk about somebody that, that uh, John talks about in the very last chapter of his book. And the, his story and what he did is a story that needs to be the same for you and I. And this man went from uh, a person who was believing in God and following God and following Jesus to going through a time of unbelief. But he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and it turned everything around for him turned it all around, and it's what he did with his life afterwards is the example for us. And the guy that John was talking about in that last chapter was a guy by the name of Peter. Now, if you're not familiar with Peter, Peter was one of the 12. He was one of the guys that followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry. He was the guy that was brave enough to step out of the boat and walk on the water with Jesus. He was a defender of Jesus. He was the one that when the soldier came after Jesus, he cut his ear off. He was all there for Jesus. But it changed when Jesus was arrested. You see, he became very fearful. He became fearful of his own life because he thought what was happening to Jesus was going to happen to him. And so what we see in his story is that he ends up denying even knowing Jesus on three different occasions. And then when Jesus went to the cross, he went away. He went back to his old life. He went back to fishing. But in John 21, we see he has an encounter because after a night of fishing, he's coming to the shore and who's there waiting for him but Jesus. Jesus is not only waiting there for him, he's got breakfast, and they have breakfast with each other, and it changed his life. Now, of course it did. I mean, come on. When you're full of unbelief, and then all of a sudden the guy that you saw die a few days ago is now having breakfast with you right now, it changes the way you think, and it changed the way he thought. He's going, I have all the proof, I have all the evidence that I need that Jesus is who he is. And so what we see is Jesus actually asked him, a question three times. And I don't think it's a, a coincidence that he asked him that three times because that's how many times he denied him. And what I think Jesus was doing in that moment was he's saying that you became fearful. You went to a point of, of unbelief of what was going to happen and you denied me. And what I want you to understand is you're going to face other things that might scare you. You're going to go through some things that might cause you to want to walk away. But you now have the proof, and I want you to know you have the proof. 
It's what he said to all the disciples in John 16, 33, when he said, in this world, you'll have trouble. He didn't say that it's a possibility you'd have trouble. He didn't say that you might have trouble. He said, you're going to have trouble. But what did he see? He said, take heart. I have overcome the world. And he was showing to Peter how he had overcome the world. He had overcome death. He was there with him. So he asked him, he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Ask me that three times. Do you love me? And every time he answered yes, Jesus told him to do something. He told him to do something. What he was telling Peter, he was telling you and I, is the fact that, that, that faith doesn't stand on its own, that faith should cause you to do something, that you should do more than just say you have faith. There should be action behind it. James, the brother of Jesus, said it this way in uh, John uh, 2.20 when he said that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. He said, if you have faith and you're not doing anything with your faith, what good is their faith? You need to be doing something with that faith. Now, let me, let me tell you this. Jesus is not saying that it's by works that you are saved. He's not saying it's a combination of, of faith and works that, that saves you, that puts your trust in him. No, we are saved by faith alone. Ephesians 2.8, it says that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, that this is a gift from God. It's nothing that we've done on ourselves. But I like the way Bill says this. He says that we're actually saved by a faith that works, that when you have been saved, when you, when you have put uh, your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that not only will it change you, but you will do something to change others. And that's what we see happens with Peter, that that faith worked and it worked not just in his life, but it worked in the lives of the people around him. Now, this story that we're going to talk about this morning takes place about two months after the, the, the resurrection. Jesus has already ascended into heaven. Remember, after the, the resurrection, he hung around for 40 days. This is where he talked to Peter. This is where he talked to the other disciples. This is where he appeared to over 500 people to say, guess what, guys? I've done everything I said. I've done it all. I've done it all for you. I'm alive. You can believe me. You can trust me. Now you need to go do your thing that I've left you to do. And he ascended. And so this is not long after his ascension. And what we see is that Peter is back in Jerusalem. Peter is back in the same place that he ran away from. He's back in the same place that he was so scared of what was going to happen to me that he took off. And he's there with John. And what we see is they're going up to the Temple Mount, the holiest of all places in Jerusalem. They're walking up to the Temple Mount. And as they're climbing the steps and they're about to enter into the Temple Mount, what we see is they, they, they see a, a crippled man that's, been, that's lying at the gate. And what we know about this man, he's about 40 years old. He's been crippled since birth. And every day he is carried from his home and he's placed at the gate. And he begs for money for everybody going in and out of that uh, of the temple. So anybody that's in there now, anybody that's ever gone into the temple, they've passed this guy at one point or another. They all know who he is. And so he, they're walking by him, and he begs them for money. And they say, well, we don't have anything, but we'll do something even better. And right there on the spot, they heal this man. This man stands up for the very first time in his life. Now, you can imagine the excitement in this guy's life. He is standing up. He's never stood before. I mean, I'm thinking this guy's going to take off and run through the streets of Jerusalem, just waving his hands, going, look at me, look at me, look at me. But what we see in the story, no. He actually follows Peter and John into the temple. See, he realizes, man, you've, you've done something for me nobody else has. I want what you have. 
I want what you have. I want to know what that is, and I'm going to stay close to you. Now, my brain kind of goes in a little crazy places when I think of putting these messages together. But when I think about staying close to that, I think about my dogs, okay? Because I've got, I've got dogs, and I'm the only one who gives them bones, okay? And I do it every morning when I put my shoes on. It was, I did it again this morning. And so every time they see I have my shoes on, they don't leave my side. So if you see hair all over my legs, it's because I got two golden retrievers and a German shepherd, okay? So I got big dogs, and they're all over me. But they know that I have something they want, and they're going to stick close to me. And that's what he's doing. He's going, you've got something I want. And that's really, if you want to get that illustration for our life with God, we got to go, God, you've got something I want. I'm staying close to you. I'm not leaving you at all. But that's what they do. So they walk in. Well, of course, because they're walking in, they get all the attention. Because everybody that's in the, the, in the Temple Mount right now has already passed this guy. They've already been begged for money by this guy. They've already seen him. And now all of a sudden, he's in there walking with Peter and John, and they're going, wait a minute. Is this the same guy? Is this the guy that we passed on the way in? How is he standing? How is he walking around? What's going on? So they all start gagging around because they want to know how this happened. Well, Peter takes it upon himself to start proclaiming the power of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ can do in your life, and he's, he's preaching to them, and what happens, we see lives being changed because he's preaching, and more people coming around, and, and a lot of commotion is going on because they're hearing the word of God being preached in the, in the temple. Well, with all this commotion, all of the temple guards start coming out going, what's going on? And they start hearing the word of Jesus being spoken on the temple, and they're not happy. See, they thought they got rid of this whole Jesus thing a couple months ago. Remember, they don't believe that anything that was coming out of Jesus' mouth was correct. They thought it was blasphemous. They thought everything that Jesus was saying was offensive to God. So if it was offensive to God, it was offensive to them, and they didn't want to hear it. So the temple guards come in, and they break everything up. They disperse the crowd, and they arrest Peter and John right there on the spot. They arrest them, and they throw them into prison. Now, like I said, this is just two months after the, the crucifixion. So they're probably put in the exact same jail that Jesus was in, and they're probably arrested by the exact same people who arrested Jesus, which again makes me to think, I wonder if one of those guards was the one that Peter cut his ear off. How awkward is that, right? Going, hey, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> hope everything's okay. You know, put this in. But even speaking of that guard, I'm thinking, how much evidence do you need that your ear is cut off and Jesus takes it and puts it back on and everything's fine? I mean, I mean, how much more evidence you need that Jesus is who he says he is? But anyway, I digress. I go on back into the thing that we're going. But they're in the exact same place that Jesus is, and we know what happened. So they are wondering what's going to happen to us. And the next day, they're brought out, and they're put in front of the religious council. They're brought before the religious council. It's Annas the high priest. It's Caiaphas' son-in-law. It's all of Annas' sons. It's all of the, the religious people that were there at the Jesus trial. It was all the ones that looked at Jesus and said, you're offensive to God, and you need to die for what you're doing to God. It was all the ones that were putting him to death. And these are the guys that now hold Peter and John's life right there in their hands. And they're looking at him going, what's up? Why are we talking about Jesus? Why are you speaking all of this right here on the Temple Mount? And what we see is Peter steps up and he starts to speak. He starts to speak. And he doesn't apologize for what he said. He doesn't go back to two months ago when he tried to deny Jesus. 
because he knows the truth now. He's got the evidence. And so he looks at those religious leaders and he says, you killed him, but God raised him. That's right. He looked at every single one of them and said, y'all killed him, but God raised him. I've seen him. I've had breakfast with him. He's alive. You try to get rid of him, guess what? He's not. He's here. Can you imagine the look on their faces? Because again, they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't put their trust in him. They thought he was, he was a phony. He thought it was, everything he said was a lie. And now he's being, they're being told that he's alive. And then what Paul, I mean, Peter does is he says something that's even more offensive to these guys. And he says this, and we'll pick it up in Acts 4. At verse 12, he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven to given to mankind by which we must be saved. He's now looking at the most holy of all people in all of Jerusalem. These are the ones who think they're more right with God than anybody else. And Peter is looking them right in the eye and saying, you are as lost as a goose. You are nowhere near God at this point. In fact, the guy you killed is the way you get to God because God raised him. And salvation is found through no one else. That he is the one that you need to surrender to, that guy you killed. I mean, the tension in that place that was going on with this, this encounter. And this is what happened. It said, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and the word courage here is not what we think of courage that took him to step out of the boat. This word is more of this brashness. This, this, this boast of, of, of feeling like he knows what's right, this, this boasting that he had of, of what he was saying. They realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished. They were going, who are these guys? Who do they think they are? They don't know the truth. We're the ones that know all of the religious teachings. We know all of, of, of what we, is, you need to do. We know the covenant. We know the law. Everything that's coming out of your mouth is wrong. We, they didn't believe in the resurrection. You got to realize, remember the Sanhedrin that they were in front of, they were Sadducees, and Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They think that you live your life for God, and then when you die, that's it. That's why they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the afterlife. They don't believe there's, there's heaven. So that's how you know what a Sadducees are. So they think everything that's being told them is wrong. And so they see them as unschooled. You're, you're, just, you're just spouting up a bunch of lies, just like what Jesus did. And he said, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So then they started thinking, well, wait a minute. Are they going to do what Jesus did? Are they going to stir this thing all back up? Do we need to go down to Pilate and ask to get a couple more crucifixions to end this whole Jesus thing once and for all? Because remember, Jews could not kill other Jews at this time. They were under the Roman law. And that's why with Jesus, they had to take him to Pilate to get him to crucify him. So they're thinking, we have to do this. Do we have to go down and say, listen, this whole Jesus thing is popping back up. Let's kill these guys. I think it can be done once and for all. But they couldn't, and this is why. It says, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. See, they didn't understand what was going on, but they'd seen this man just like anybody else when they were walking in and out of the temple. And they know this guy was standing there, and they knew that somehow God's hand had to be in it. And the fact for them to do anything to, to Peter and John, that means they were going against what God had already done. And so they weren't going to do that, and they knew they would have a riot on their hands if, if they tried to do anything because all the people saw what happened. So their hands were tied, and they had to let him go. But before they left, this is what they did. They said, 
we're going to let you go, and you were lucky this time. But if you speak about Jesus anymore, and you find yourself back in front of us next time, it's not going to end well for you. So you can leave. Go live your life. But don't be talking about Jesus anymore. We don't want to hear it. We're done with that. And so they let him go. And what do you think they did? You think they just said, wow. <laughs> That's a close one, wasn't it? <laughs> we, 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 almost, we almost lost it right there, right? Man, we, we better listen. We better listen to the, to the religious leaders. After all, they're in control. We, we need to listen to them. You think that's what they did? You think they just said, you know, it's good. Jesus saved us. We should be content with that. That's fine. We don't need to worry about anybody else because worrying about somebody else might get us killed, so we're not going to do that. No. They had the evidence. They had the proof. Jesus was alive. They're not listening to these people. They're not worried about what they can do to them. And so what we see is they go and they gather with other Christians that have been there praying for Peter and John. Now, what you need to realize is back in that first century, the Christians were the most persecuted people on the planet. So they had to go underground with their faith a lot of times. And so they were then down uh, making sure they were kind of out of the way. And they go and tell them, this is what was said. And they told us that we can't speak about Jesus anymore. And what we see happens right there in Acts 4 is all of these Christians, they all gather around together. And they start to pray. And it's this prayer is the prayer that you and I should be praying on a daily basis. And this is what they pray. They say, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He's saying, God, we know that you're the author of all creation, that you put all of this into motion, that you are the one that's in control. And even though at times we're living our life, it doesn't feel like you're in control because it feels like we have to do what the Romans want us to do, or we have to listen to what the religious council people tell us to do. But God, ultimately, we know that you are the one that's in control. And it says, you spoke by the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your servant, our father David. And they're talking about King David here. And in this prayer, they start reciting this psalm, this psalm that David wrote. And they say, why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And what this, they were reciting was what we call a messianic psalm. And it's a psalm that was written about Jesus. It was just written a thousand years before Jesus. And they're saying that the one that David was talking about, the one that God was going to send, we know is Jesus. And he says, indeed, they say, Herod, Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. He is the real deal. He's the one. He's our savior. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've all been waiting for. He says, and they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, let me tell you what they're talking about right there. You need to realize that what the Jews all thought was the Messiah was coming to free them from the Romans, to establish his kingdom here. So when Jesus made his triumphal entry into, into Jerusalem, they were all shouting, save us, save us, because you're the one that's coming to save us. That's what everybody thought. But then he gets taken to the cross. That's where Peter's unbelief came from. I thought we were coming to, to take, take over, and now look what's happened. You're arrested. So is all this over? Did what I think was going to happen, is, does, was that just you know, up in the air? 
And so that's why it goes away. Because we all thought this was going to happen. But he's saying that, no, we now realize, God, you knew that was going to happen. That you actually, that was what you had started and planned from the very beginning of time was going to happen. That Jesus was not coming to free us. He was coming to free the entire world. He wasn't coming just to save the Jews. He was coming to save the entire world. And we understand that now. And God, we want to be a part of your plan. And so this is what they pray. They say, now, Lord, consider the threats. Consider what we're up against. We've already been told that, that nothing good's going to happen if we speak the name of Jesus. So understand what we're up against, and we know you understand that. And they said, because of that, they say, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They're saying, God, don't let us listen to what the Romans are saying. Don't let us listen to what the religious council are saying. Don't let us just hold on to the faith ourselves. Give us the courage to go out and speak your word because that word changed our life and we want it to change other people's lives. And they say, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant Jesus. They're going, help us to change people. You've changed us. Give us the power to go out and change somebody else's life. And it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaking, and, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. They didn't listen to what the religious council told them. They listened to what God had called them to do. And because they did that, thousands upon thousands of people had their lives changed. Remember in Acts, that's when the church began. What we need to realize is we are sitting here because of the boldness of first century Christians that boldly went out and proclaimed Jesus, not worrying about what would happen to them because of talking about Jesus. But they knew this is what they were called to do. And what we need to realize is 2,000 years later, we're called to still do the same thing. We're called to do the same thing, to make a difference in somebody else's life. That if God has changed you, go change somebody else. If you've experienced the love of Christ, go share that love with somebody else. There's three characteristics I want to end with that really were the characteristics that they had, and it's what we need to have if we're going to do what they did, if we're going to do what Jesus has called us to do, if we're going to put our faith into action. And the first one is we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful to what God wants us to do, what we are called to do. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, it says, as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries of God, uh, with the mysteries God has revealed, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And what that's saying, if God has changed your life, live the changed life. Don't go back. You are new creations in Christ. Stop living your own way. Let it go. Be an example of a changed life. Look different than everybody else. It's, it's Galatians 2.20 when Paul says that, that I'm a new creation in Christ. It's, I no longer live. It's Christ that lives in me. 
Surrender your daily walk, your daily life to Christ. Let Christ live through you so that people see Christ in your life. Paul said this in, in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, when he says that imitate me as I imitate Christ. I don't want people to see me. I want them to see Jesus. You got to remember in, 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 in the book of Acts, it's the first time people are called Christians. It was actually a derogatory term, but they were called Christians because people were looking at him going, uh, you're, you're acting like that Christ guy. What's up? You're acting like that Christ guy. Have any of you ever been accused of acting like that Christ guy? That's what we're called to do, to imitate, that we are supposed to stand out to be different than what the world is, to make a difference. And what does it mean to, to act like that Christ guy? Luke 19.10, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. See, you need to understand in, in God's way of thinking, there's two types of people, saved and unsaved. We have all these categories for what people are and all these things. That God looks at it this way, saved and unsaved. And he's saying, you need to look at everybody as saved and unsaved. Seek and save the lost. That's why I love our church. That's why I love what we do. Over 15 years ago, my wife and I were looking for a church. And when we came to the Met, we knew it was our home. And, and, and the reason why, one of the reasons why we knew this was our home, because we knew this was a place that we could bring our lost friends to. We knew this was a place that we could bring our lost friends and they would feel welcome, they would feel loved, but more importantly, to hear the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And that's why I love this church. What you need to think about is every single weekend is an opportunity you have somebody sitting beside you that doesn't know Jesus. Every single weekend is an opportunity to bring somebody that doesn't know Jesus and have them right there with you. And let me tell you, when you sit in, a, in, a, in, in this auditorium and you have a friend that you know doesn't know Jesus, it changes the way you think of church. It changes the way you think of the service. Because now, through this, you're thinking, I hope they get it. I hope they see it. And I hope they take hold of it. It changes the way you do. And that's why we do what we do. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. That's why we're the church that we are at Matthew 28, 19, when he says, that was the last thing he said before he ascended. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's what we've been called to do. When's the last time you invited somebody? When's the last time that you knew somebody in your life needed to know about Jesus and you invited them? Put that on your checklist. Get them here the next time. And this next series that we're going to be doing called Transformed that Bill's going to be talking about, it's all about what that changed life looks like. So make sure that you have somebody here. And that leads to the second characteristic that we have to have. We need to be forthright. We don't need to be shy about this. We need to be bold. That's what he said. God, give us the ability to boldly speak your name. We need to be forthright. We need to put that out there. Make sure that all your neighbors know that you're a Christ follower. Make sure that all your neighbors and all of the people you work with know that you're a Christ follower. And let me tell you, this is how you let them know you love them, okay? This isn't about going, going hardcore on everybody. You know this is not how Bill does his thing here. It's the fact that we share love, and that's what you do. Let them know you love them. But this is what Paul said 
about being forthright. And he said this in Ephesians 6, 19. He said, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fiercely make known the mysteries of the gospel. And what he was saying, God, give me opportunities. That's a powerful prayer. And I challenge you to put that prayer in your morning. Say, God, give me the opportunity today to share my faith. That's a big prayer. Don't just throw that out there. But say, God, give me the opportunity to share my faith. And I know a lot of you are thinking, well, I don't know what to say. Well, you don't need to be a theologian, okay? It's not about you coming and giving some dissertation on what it means. What you do is tell people, Jesus changed my life, and I know he can change yours. First century Christians, guess what? They didn't have a Bible, okay? So they weren't sharing the Bible. They were sharing their own experience. Peter was saying, I had breakfast with him. He's alive. <laughs> Let me tell you. They're trying to tell you that it's, it's over. It's, no, he's alive, man. Well, that's what you have to say. I'm a changed life. I just want to let you know. I want to speak it. I want to be forthright. I want you to do. And why? Because I know Jesus loved you so much that he died for you. Well, that's why I love you, and I want you to have the same thing I have. So this isn't something that we should be scared to, to, to put out there. Uh, Penn Gillette, he's the, the, one of the magicians with the pen and teller. And he's actually a very, very, very big atheist. I mean, he speaks very much. He doesn't believe in God at all. But what he has said, I've heard him do an interview before, and he said, you know, what bothers me about Christians more than anything else is the fact that if I strongly believed that Jesus is who he says he is, and that the only way for me to have eternal life and to go to heaven is through Jesus Christ, I can't understand why they're not shouting it from the rooftops. He goes, I don't believe it. But if they believe it, why are they not trying to shout it at me all the time? Because if this is the truth, well, that's what Jesus is saying, guys. We need to care about people. We need to care. We got to love people. We need to have them here. We need to be bringing those. And we need to do it, as Paul said, fearlessly. And that's the last thing. You need to be fearless. You need to be fearless. Because what Satan is going to do, he's going to do everything in your power to get you to shut up. He's going to do everything in your power to keep your mouth closed. He's going to tell you that, that, that you don't know what to say, so don't even bother. He's going to tell you that, listen, when you look at your past, who's going to listen to you? When you see what you've done, who's going to follow you? Who's going to, who's going to look at you? Let me just tell you this right now. The worst past you have, the better example you are of a changed life. So share that out there. You put that out there. You let everybody know what he has done to your life. Be fearless with that. And the other thing he's going to do is get you to doubt God. He's going to get you to doubt God. He's going to put circumstances in your life that are going to make you doubt, just like he did with Peter. He made Peter doubt him. And that's why Peter went away. But you need to be fearless. 1 John 4, 18, it says that there's no fear in love. The perfect love casts out all fear. And what that means is when you stay like the guy that was crippled, when you stay close to God and you stay in God's love, all that fear is gone. And it's a great litmus test. If you're feeling fear, you've kind of wandered off a little bit. 
So come on back. That's why what it says in uh, James says in James 4, 8, it says, draw near to God and he draws near to you. Well, if God is everywhere, why do I have to draw near to God if he's already there? Well, it's because you're the one who's been not noticing he's there. It's just changing your view, going, oh, you're there. That's what drawing near to him is. Stay close. Last week was Easter. And during the Easter service, we actually did one of my favorite worship songs. And I know it's a lot of y'all's favorite worship songs, a song called um, I Raise a Hallelujah. And I was doing some research on that song about um, why the guy wrote it and what kind of inspired him to write this. And what he was saying was he actually wrote this in a time of unbelief. He said it was a time that he had gotten a text uh, from a friend of his who had a, uh, a son that wasn't doing well, was in the hospital. And he wrote back, he goes, please pray. I don't think he's going to make it. Please pray. And he said the minute he got the text, he said unbelief fell over him. He said there's nothing. It's over. And he wasn't even going to pray. He just said that's it. I, God can't do it. But then he said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and pray anyway. And when he started praying, the words to that song came to him. I raise a hallelujah louder than my unbelief. You've got to make God louder in your ears than Satan. You've got to make your praise bigger than your problems. You know that Jesus is who he says he is. He's going to see you through all things, so that's why you praise him. You praise him louder because that's what's going to keep you fearless through everything that you face. Psalm 34, it says, magnify the Lord. Let us praise his name together. Magnify means make big. Let me tell you, you're not going to make God any bigger. But when you praise, you make him bigger to you. And when God is bigger to you, you know he's bigger than everything you face. And he's bigger than anything that you're worried about. And he's bigger than anything that you fear. And that's why you can go out and live the life that he's called you to live. And when you're faithful and when you're forthright and you're fearless, guess what? You are going to be all the proof anybody needs to know that Jesus is alive and you're going to change somebody's life forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much. We thank you for all that you do. We thank you for knowing our need before we knew it. That you had planned to send your son before the world began. That he would come and die on the cross for our sins so that we could spend eternity with you. And God, we thank you for that. And God, we just want to live lives that carry out what you've called us to do to share the love that we have found in you to those that don't know you, to see lives being changed. Help us to be that example. Help us to imitate you. Help us to, to throw our old selves behind and, and realize we're new creations in you and we can make a difference in this world because that's what we want to do for you. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you've never entered into that relationship, you're here and you're watching for a reason. God has made a divine appointment with you right now. 
He wanted you to hear his words. He wanted you to see his love because he wants to change your life. So right where you are right now, open up your heart to him. Say, God, I know I've been doing everything all wrong. I'm a sinner. But I know now that you love me so much that you sent your son to die for my sins. And so I turn from that and I turn to you and I put my life in your hands. I put my trust in you. I believe in you. I want to be with you. You're now part of the family if you said that, if you believe that. God's got a perfect plan for your life and he wants you to share that love that you have now and make a difference in somebody else's life. God, we thank you for all you do. Help us to leave this place and go shine your light. We love you and praise you and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.